All right, I'm here with uh, Craig Wright, Chief Scientist of InChain. My name is Ryan X. Charles, founder and CEO of MoneyButton. Um, I've been in, involved in Bitcoin since about 2011. Of course, Craig goes way, way, way back before that. And for those of us that have talked with Craig a lot, we recognize Craig has a huge amount of knowledge about Bitcoin, but everything around Bitcoin, a lot more knowledge than, than you might realize uh, at first. So I really want to try to start covering all of the theoretical background of, of Bitcoin. And Craig has more knowledge than anybody else by quite a lot, I think. So um, the, the goal here is basically to start covering the different uh, sort of theoretical subject matter that, that's behind Bitcoin. So, Craig, I, I wanted to start and say that uh, uh, there is a, uh, uh, you and I were talking recently, and there's a really important idea that, to me, explains something pretty important about Bitcoin uh, that I think is sort of widely misunderstood or not understood, which is that you, you were talking about PKI mm. and the, uh, some of the security problems with PKI and how you actually perceive Bitcoin to be a security system. You mentioned this one certificate authority, uh, DigiNota, that had been hacked. And it's like, that's kind of a fundamental security vulnerability with the internet. And Bitcoin, the, the way you explained this to me was as a, it's a sort of security system that just doesn't have that vulnerability. So do you want to just maybe explain that vision for, for Bitcoin? So the timestamp server aspect of Bitcoin, which is section three of my white paper, details something that Matthias and whatever else have been working on, which is how do we make this a, a lot more trusted. Now, they still didn't get around the concept of being able to distribute the, um, the systems, but what they were saying is by publishing the hash of what they call rounds rather than blocks, um, and you put it in a newspaper, um, so instead of the blockchain, you put it into a newspaper and everyone can get it, then you can provably say at a point in time that this existed. And that was important because what I was telling you about things like DigiNota is if a certificate authority or a timestamp um, authority, which were both secure aspects of everything that makes the foundations of the internet were ever compromised, every document ever issued is then compromised. So imagine you've bought a home or you have a car loan or something like this. And after DigiNota, banks and other organizations had to go back and totally update everything. They had to audit from source records and they had to prove the existence of all these files, sometimes going back 25 years. Sometimes it could have even been longer. So imagine that you have now a certificate that uh, gets compromised. Every single document in your organization is compromised. Yeah. Not just from that point on, forever. Yeah. And that's the real problem with this system. Um, the the timestamp authority would lose a document, say, in 2010, but a document signed in 1998 would then be compromised as well. Okay, so I want to clarify something then, because you're talking about this timestamp authority. Are you referring to that paper, or the, the second reference in the white paper? Is that the one I you're am. talking about? Okay. Yes. Do you want to maybe just explain that for people, I mean, just for the sake of, uh, you know, what, what, it, what is that reference in the, in the white paper? That reference actually takes um, an earlier system, which was developed in 1991, um, Haber and, and others, and developed it into a methodology for securing a single central timestamp authority, which is part of the PKI infrastructure, public key infrastructure. This is the system that secures TLS or SSL, um, where you get those little 
certified by type things on your web browser so that you know your bank can be trusted, so that you know your Microsoft security updates are valid, all of the signing certificates and everything like that, that make the internet work. It all comes because of this infrastructure and it's fragile. The current structure is a web of trust, but it, it's designed in such a way that if one individual company goes down, it can impact everything. So uh, an analogy I would use is Christmas tree lights. The old way of doing Christmas tree lights were in serial. So you'd have one light after another. And if anyone remembers cheap old lights, what would happen is one light would blow and every single light would go. And you'd have to spend hours changing bulb one by one to find the correct one and sometimes then one would go again. If you did that in parallel, then a single bulb can go, but every other bulb will keep going. Yeah. So if you think of it like electric circuits, it's very robust. Yeah. And the more wires you have, the more robust it is. Yeah. So Bitcoin is like that. If a single node ever gets compromised, it doesn't compromise the network. Yeah. To compromise the network, you need to get greater than 50% of the nodes compromised simultaneously and get away with it. Um, because you have an evidence trail and all, even if there's a single uncompromised node, it provides a legal evidence trail. So when people say 51% uh, attack, it's actually more resilient than even that. If you have 1% of the network providing actual valid information um, and not the attack, you now have a legally verifiable evidence trail um, that can be rebuilt. So I understand. What, I think I understand what you're saying. Anyway, so I mean, imagine a situation where basically a miner were compromised because a, a, a miner's a business, and Correct. presumably they're trying to actually comply with the law and they're mm -hmm. reasonable. They got customers and all this stuff, but they could be hacked just like DigiNota was hacked, and so that'd be a problem because that would be a, a way that you could imagine, you know, not being able to rely on say, uh, you know, ZeroConf and stuff like this because if they were hacked by someone yes. that actually is malicious. And yeah, I mean, do you want to? So that's the whole. Why is Bitcoin distributed? Because if you imagine lots of different companies all simultaneously verifying transactions, then attacking them in the future won't be, haha, we've found a single vulnerability in Windows or Linux or whatever else. It will now be having to attack multiple companies with multiple different security policies, multiple implementations. And that's far more difficult. And trying to do that simultaneously, not against a company or a group, but many, without being detected, it's going to be more and more difficult. So in the future, I see the one protocol, but I see individual mining farms will start developing their own software. Some of this already happens, and it will be a more effective and efficient version for them. Maybe the way that they've structured their network um, or whatever else, and some people will use Cassandra or Hadoop or whatever else to build the network and some will run it on Linux and some will run um, Windows clusters and all these things will be different and that will make it more and more complex for anyone attempting to attack the network. Yeah okay so then then to be clear let me ask sort of like a, 
the, the way PKI seems to me is that not only is there a central point of failure, it sounds like there's actually multiple different central points of failure. It's like it's actually worse than one central point. It's like correct. Like you could hack one of them and you hack the entire thing. Yes. And you're describing Bitcoin as is basically this uh, you know more robust system where. You just can't, it's nothing like, it's different because you hack one, you only hack one. You don't hack the entire thing. Yeah. So it gets isolated and breaks off the network and the rest of the miners basically go, this guy is being strange and isolate it. And immediately you end up with a system that sort of self heals. Yeah. Okay, so then th this is related, this is something where, because I've been involved in, in crypto for so long and, and there are a lot of things here that I think that, like what you say is so reasonable when you, when you understand these issues. And there are a lot of people that say stuff that's very surface level reasonable until you start getting it in and all of a sudden it stops making sense at all. And there is another thing that you brought up to me that's kind of related to all this. Uh, so CIA, and I bring this up, this is, a, a, if I remember correctly, I try to say it and you correct me mm -hmm. if I get it wrong. It's confidentiality, integrity, and was it uh, authenticity or is it availability? Availability. availability. Yeah. So this is interesting because this is like, the definition of security yes. that I actually was unaware of, and which is interesting just because it's like, how, how is it possible I was so involved in crypto and learning from all these people and never learned the definition of security? Do you want to just explain what that is and, and what is CIA? So the CIA triangle is the sort of three things you need to have a secure system. And this is where people who go, oh, just turn the internet off, don't get it, because you're no longer available. So to have a robust working system, your information needs to maintain confidentiality. Um, if your private data leaks, then you've been compromised. You need to maintain integrity. So if you can't trust that your file hasn't been changed, yes. then you don't have something that you can trust at all. Um, but importantly, you also need to be available. Any business or even government agency or whatever else needs to be able to access the internet and have people access them. Or what is their purpose for existence? Yeah. Well then can you, and then presumably Bitcoin has these properties. You want to explain That's that? I mean, what, what are the properties of Bitcoin that it has that satisfies this definition of security? So integrity. What we have is a system of hashes, which are message digest algorithms. And that when you have a secure hash, you can change one bit of information in a file and you get a completely new number. And it's basically mathematically impossible, um, infeasible anyway, um, to alter anything to find a collision. Now, collisions have happened in earlier hash algorithms such as SHA-1 um, SHA and MD5 famously before that. But even then, they're detectable. So people go on about MD5, you can do whatever, but you can change your format and append data to MD5, but you can always detect that someone has done the attack. So Bitcoin not only uses a hash, but it uses a standard format uh, that is easily verifiable by nodes who will be able to go, oh, there's a block of data that doesn't fit into Bitcoin script appended to this script to make it have the same hash. So even if there was a collision, it wouldn't work. Now, that's the integrity. So every single miner can validate every transaction and know that they haven't changed. Every user can do the same. When you have SPV and other things, you only need to have the message index, the hash, and you know that the full transaction, the way it was put on the blockchain, is the way that you're being handed it. So if you only have the hash header, 
and I give you a transaction and you can follow it up that, um, that index path, you now definitively know that it has not changed. So you don't need to download that full message at all, which that allows scaling. So next, confidentiality. This is the privacy aspect of Bitcoin. In section 10 of my white paper, I actually didn't remove identity. When I'm talking about privacy, it actually puts the firewall between identity and the transactions in Bitcoin, which differs in the way that traditionally um, commerce and, and payment exchanges have worked, which is we basically have counterparties and trusted third parties, which are AML, KYC type authorizers and transaction validators and other people like that who hold and validate money and do additional checks. And they maintain all of our information, which reduces privacy significantly. So Bitcoin's designed to allow individuals to exchange, not to remove identity, but to ensure that it's privately maintained. So in this, I can actually maintain my own identity. And if I maintain my own identity, then the target is actually lower. So rather than, as I've said before, uh, things like Equifax or Target, where tens or hundreds of millions of customers can be exposed simultaneously, we have the scenario where you have to attack not one organization as an attacker and get a lot of money out of it because each bit of information can be worth $100, $200 per attacked client, sometimes more. But rather you have to attack hundreds of clients, millions of clients, etc. So your data is now asymmetrically sort of against the attacker. Whereas before you had to attack, like target, one company to get a hundred million, a billion dollars worth of data or more, now you have to attack a hundred million customers to do that. And your investment is the same really, or not the same, but it's very high for each person you're doing. So to get that um, hundred, two hundred, three hundred dollars per customer, now you have to spend days or weeks attacking their individual home network and it's no longer economically incentivized. So privacy is in Bitcoin because although you can have identity, um, as I've said, ECDSA is a homomorphically added, um, additive key system, allowing you to have a registered key and a hash chain that can be provably linked to an individual, yet completely private. So we can actually form a chain of identity keys that can link back to a government certified identity and yet also only prove to the individuals I'm, I'm communicating with who I am. So I can provably go to the tax office and say, this is my pay. Yes. And I can provably go to them and go, this is my university fees. And I can prove that those records a single and individual, yes. and um, someone else can't see my stuff on the internet. So in the sort of copy coin version of Bitcoin, where you're limiting the block size and you're complaining about everything being too big, a lot of the privacy features aren't able to be enabled. But you know, people talk thus about um, what happens if I get paid? Everyone will know about my pay and where it went and everything. Well, if you're only limiting what you can send, that's true. 
But instead of getting my, say, thousand um, sort of uh, US dollar paycheck um, after tax or whatever else, um, and then having all of that known individually and the, the employer can see each individual uh, thing and other people can go, this is my employer to me, I no longer use the same key. If I have a hash chain, the employer will know each key in order, and so will I. But I can further index that. So imagine instead now of getting one transaction of $1,000 worth of Bitcoin, I could now have 100 individual transactions. Each of those 100 transactions for $10 has a small fee, say, hundredth or less of a cent, so I sacrifice one cent in fiat value, and now the rest of my money comes through privately. The employer could even do that individually. In future, it could even be a tenth of a cent. Now, the employer sees I get basically a hundred $10 notes, and the employer now sees that I spend it with someone. But say I go into, um, in America, Macy's or somewhere like that, if they still exist. Um, I walk in there and I spend some money. Now, there's a hash chain between Macy's and myself as well. So what they see is an address that has never been used before um, that I send to Macy's, that provably, from Macy's point of view, links me and my order to my $10 note effectively $10 worth of Bitcoin, and then any change comes back to a completely new address. So an external attacker would not know, one, whether that's Macy's, or two, whether it's change, or even if they broke into Macy's and found these things, that would not even be able to record what change I got, let alone the other. Yet at the same time, law enforcement um, with proceeds of crime would be able to follow traditionally the old audit trial methods. So if I detected that you were a criminal, um, I could come up to you and say, I've got this evidence. I'm going to do a plea deal because we want your boss. Give me where you got that money from. And you could provably show evidence to link that guy. Yeah, okay, so I, I get this part. So I mean, you know, this is something where, and I, I tell people, you know, in order to understand what you're saying, because I understand everything you're saying, and I'm certain that not everyone does, probably a lot of people here do, but because you, you just kind of mixed you know, this idea of privacy along with you know, whatever you said, it was homomorphically additive keys or something like this, which I know because I programmed some of this stuff. Um, so what you're basically describing, and I'll put it in my own words, you correct me if I'm wrong, we can move on to the, the next thing though, but it's just this idea that uh, basically on the blockchain, you've got a bunch of keys that are, no one knows whether they're linked or how they're linked, but the proof of what's linked and how it is is maintained by the individuals creating these Correct. transactions and stuff like this. So that way they're able to maintain precisely the level of privacy that's appropriate so they can maintain Correct. their own proof for what they know they're going to want to prove to other parties in the future. Um, and then the stuff that hits the blockchain, the stuff that's public is who knows what that stuff is. So. Exactly. So now what about availability? Because I ultimately want to come back to understanding the, the second reference in the white paper and uh, basically, some of the, like, I want to get to what's original in Bitcoin, but can you go to, let's just do availability first. So what is, in what so, way is, yeah. To be available, I need to do two things. One, I need to be able to communicate with the other party, 
Um, and if I'm talking peer-to-peer -peer and I'm actually doing that, then you're available. If you're not, then there'll be alternatives. So that comes to the individual at a peer level to ensure that their systems are available, as you have now. But you could have multiple different output forms. You could have, instead of the internet, we could use Bridgefly and other things and have Bluetooth distributed networks. We could have 5G. We could have anything you want to enable Bitcoin to be sent yes. without being able to be taken down. Now, the other aspect is the node structure. So the node structures um, form what everyone hates this word, centralized network, because they form a giant network. But it's a distributed centralized point. Mathematically, a giant node in a network approximates the same form of a hub and spoke where you have a, a central controlled aspect, but it isn't a central controlled aspect. So you get the uh, best out of both worlds. So it's a hybrid form where you have a robust network that acts as if it's a central network. And that's an important aspect here because central um, sort of hub and spoke networks are fast, they're efficient, and they work very well. Distributed mesh uh, networks don't. They're slow. They're prone to errors, um, they have security problems, and they can be civiled. So the compromise here, which isn't really a compromise if you actually figure out the overlay structure, is to enable a secure transaction uh, because it's indexed in a way that the integrity of the message can't be changed, that can be sent and distributed to fairly much all of the nodes nearly simultaneously because miners are incentivized to form a near complete graph. This will enable um, every miner to put enough resources, because they're meant to be commercial, um, into making a network that, well, won't go down. And the thing is, if any individual goes down, if they decide they're not making money at the moment, if they're intermittent because they're based on wind farms or whatever else, then there'll be enough other players in the network to come in. So because um, others are economically incentivized, this will fluctuate based on how many nodes are making money at the time. So if you have, say, 100 distributed global nodes in big companies and data centers, all the rest, could even be more, then they're just profitable. Now, imagine what happens if something happens to one of the nodes. They're suddenly uh, taken out in a disaster or hacker attack or something like this. And now, say, five of the nodes drop off the network because of a natural disaster. Suddenly, the profitability remains the same overall, um, yet there are uh, so those other remaining nodes earn more. And this is the wonders of economics. So people see profit. And once profit is distributed and, and noticed and seen, then other people will go, oh, it's time to turn on my node. And they will turn on their nodes, and the network will again self-heal. Because people will, will see the money and see the um, suddenly increased profit margin from mining this area, and will have idle machines that they turn on. Okay, so this is again where, because now we're sort of entering uh, sort of economics mm. to talk about this, and there's a lot to this aspect. 
But before going into the details of this thing, so can we talk about the second reference in the white paper? Because I thought this was really interesting. Let me just frame the question before you go into it. Um, so it's like the, what I thought was really interesting about this was there are data structures and ideas in there that are awfully similar to Bitcoin. So maybe can you just explain what is that reference? And the goal is we, we want to understand what actually is original in Bitcoin. So section three of the white paper in the timestamp server was very pithy and small because I actually expect people to read source documents, which as a former university lecturer, I should realize in the world of Wikipedia, no one does. Um, but I won't give up on that. I believe one day someone will actually read a source document. I hold in hope for that one. Now, going back to 1991, the original reference is effectively what is blockchain, which is um, an indexed hash chain. You take a hash and you concatenate it against the new value and you concatenate that against the new one, etc., to build a chain of former hashes. And then you have a binary tree. What we now call a Merkle tree was actually uh, done by Ralph Merkle, and he called it a binary tree. So a particular type of binary tree now is what we call a Merkle tree. So all of that information um, is for scaling. And that was available. Um, BTC have not figured out that the only reason to have a Merkle tree in Bitcoin, it's not security, it's actually less secure than the raw data. Um, a single hash is more secure than a hash of a hash of a hash. You lose bits of information the more you rehash things, uh, something people didn't seem to realize. So if you want to have it um, secure, I mean, it's still secure, um, instead of 256 bits of information, you go down to like 251 after the Merkle tree structure, etc. Um, enough not to worry. But now, instead of having um, a few blocks of transactions, you could have trillions. And you can scale that out to fairly much everyone. Because the miners are verifiable, the miners self-verify, and they put out a header and that header can be tracked down there. So this is part of what was being talked about in uh, the second reference. That publication would allow people to validate um, and the way they did their verification process was you put it in a newspaper. Now, one of the things I'd been working on, I, I um, uh, had done extensive work in the past um, on peer networks, but not from the normal point of view. I worked uh, back from when I was with BDO, um, with uh, the South Australian police on things like um, uh, child grooming networks and making sure that they were taken down. And I worked with others, including um, the takedown of uh, Pirate Bay and a number of sort of rip-off movie sites and other things. And one thing I started to realise is it is really difficult to actually track everything in peer-to-peer -peer networks. The, um, if these people in, in charge were honest, then it would be nearly impossible. So things like Grokster or whatever else only went down because the guy at the head could be targeted. If you didn't have that guy at the head, um, which there's always a person as the coder, always, always an organization, because even, say, Bitcoin Core or Bitcoin ABC, they're what is called in law a partnership. 
They might be global, they might be distributed, they're a partnership. And that's worse than a company legally because every single individual is jointly and equally liable. So you charge it one actually person. actually reminds me of PKI, not to interrupt, but it's kind of like there's mm. like, you have like, a, you, you, you sort of, uh, this, this network of individuals there that they can be compromised. And, Correct. Yeah, so. so you compromise one, you compromise them all. Um, so it's really a structure that if you start thinking about it, you, in BTC, uh, with a one meg block, you hash thousands of times to be less secure than if you put a single hash of the transactions in order as just a block of data. And you could do that uh, without a Merkle tree. And it would still be one meg, and it would be faster, and it would run better on Raspberry Pis. <laughs> so, um, but what you can't do without that, and if you're trying to index, um, I mean, everyone remembers if they've done computer science, bubble sorts and all the rest. If you're trying to index that, and you don't have any tree structure to be able to organize properly, uh, if you want to put that out to an SPV node, how you scale the separate parts of the network, the peer network for users and the miners. So we, we want to get these users to be able to only get the index data. I can't do that now in, in that block. How do I get a billion transactions in a block out to these guys? And how do I get it in order and verify it in order and everything? Well, that's why you have the binary tree. And that's what the indexing is about. So all of that was in that series of papers. Okay, so what, what you're describing is that this is extremely interesting uh, for those of us involved in crypto because one of the things, I, I, I did some smart things, but I made a lot of mistakes in being involved in crypto. One of the smart things I did was to actually read what Satoshi Nakamoto wrote. So I wrote not just the white paper, read not just the white paper, but a lot of the other stuff. Um, I wish I had dived into more of the background though. Um, and basically what you're saying is a lot of this stuff, uh, there are two, a lot of things you're saying, but um, many of these ideas already existed. And there is one of the problems with the, uh, uh, you know, th this other approach, the second re reference in the white paper, many of these early ideas was uh, that th this was ultimately solved in Bitcoin where you have this, uh, the, the timestamp server is, the, is the sort of the key difference or at least a key difference. Do you want to just, I mean, you know, what, what are, can we just talk about that? Like what are I'll the key to, differences? I'll yeah, get go, to go two ahead. parts. Yeah. First, um, where I was getting to is what they had in that paper that they said, you can't trust um, all these distributed networks. Like they had PKI being fragile, these guys said, well, we're going to have a single central trusted server and we trust them because we're going to put this stuff out to be audited in newspapers. It has to be published widely. That's why you put the block hash out, why the round hash they saw. But rather than a newspaper, I mean, these guys are uh, old and uh, crusty and whatever else now. Back in the 90s, they were already in their 50s and 60s, and they hadn't really thought about the internet. And I'd been working on peer networks and trying to take them down, actually. And the whole, how do you stop distribution with LimeWire, with Grokster, with eDonkey, how do you stop distribution? It's really hard. So if we have a legal system, one that there's nothing to charge you on, then it's even harder. So imagine now, um, rather than a newspaper, I have everyone including um, take the hash, not just miners, because it's the hash header that needs to go out there to be secure. So this is where all these private blockchains go wrong. The 
entire security of the system is that the hash header, that the tree structure is public. So all this, we're keeping a private blockchain. You don't have a private blockchain. A private blockchain is an anathema. It, it's anti-security. It, it, you can run multiples at once and, and all that stuff. It just means you've massively misunderstood the entire technology and have just used jargon to make up some junk because the entire security of the system is publishing widely. It is taking that hash header and publishing it everywhere. In a newspaper, you get it out to lots of newspapers. If you put it in um, uh, the sun or something like that, it goes out to lots of people. There are lots of copies. How do I ensure lots of copies? Every single peer on the network gets a hash header. If we have a billion people using Bitcoin, try and defraud a billion people simultaneously by breaking into all their networks and changing all of this in their history and their backups and everything like that, and you're not going to do it. So that's really what the key is here, to publish that bit of information. Yeah. So um, then why is a question people don't think about. So Bitcoin is designed to be traceable, and this is why I wanted to do it. So to make this secure, to actually work, um, privacy is one thing, and it needs to be, it's an important part of cash, but it should also be traceable. Every cryptocurrency has failed in the past, not because they don't have trusted third parties or anything, but exactly because they didn't have trusted third parties. Those trusted third parties were there to provide the tracing. So eCash did not have a blockchain. And because it didn't have a blockchain, it required a trusted third party. So this whole idea of lightning and everything like that is going back to, we've removed the blockchain, we're going to add back the trusted third party. We're going to add back watchtowers because big companies can be trusted third parties again and they can hold your information and record it and manage all your info and be a single point of failure to lose your data. Yeah, so I mean, but one of the takeaways I have, and I have so many takeaways, I don't even know where to begin from all this, but. You know, the, the, the security of the system improves at scale. So part of the reason why it's mm. secure is this, this massive distribution of block hashes yes. uh, occurs at scale. That's Correct. one of the properties at scale. Um, this is the exact opposite of the people that are, seem to be arguing there's something better. It's not more secure. Like, they think it's more secure if it's small. Mm. It's the exact opposite. I mean, Yes. The problem is they don't really want Bitcoin. They don't want a secure digital cash system. Because um, when you're trying to make a heroin store, which came about first in June, July 2010 as a concept, um, when I was trying to promote um, commercial uses for Bitcoin and trying to seed people to have ideas like I do now. Like, I mean, I could have built things, but I want other people to have part in the ecosystem. And the first concept that people came up with, with all the other ideas floating about that they built, was a heroin store. I talked to some of these people personally and said, why don't you think about pot? Uh, Vancouver legally allows you to sell marijuana, but no one can get banking. Wouldn't that be a great way of promoting this legally? Oh no, heroin is much better because we get to fight the state. So then, so another, another thing, that there's a theme of what I think is, uh, it's important to discuss with Bitcoin is that this touches on many different uh, 
uh, sort of subject matters. And for people to understand this stuff, there's a, there's a lot going on here. So um, you're talking about the law, and you're talking about, you, you mentioned for uh, 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 briefly uh, this idea that, uh, so the, the system is actually more secure if it's legal and it's compliant because you know, there's no, uh, you can't, the, the government can't go after it if it's legal. Yeah. Um, is that what you're saying? I mean, can you, can you go into that a minute? I mean, what, where does the law intersect Bitcoin and what is the relevance of the law for Bitcoin? Um, so the law is critically important here. Um, everything in Bitcoin was really based on um, a combination, mostly British, but a little bit of American law. Um, I study, still study, but studied um, British law. So it's really based on the idea of monetary transfers as um, British systems have done, as token systems have done. Things like property as a documentary um, intangible, um, how uh, different token systems have existed in the past. And legally, Bitcoin's not that different to things. People think Bitcoin's new and whatever else. But when you start thinking that your ownership of the Bitcoin isn't nebulously out there on the blockchain, it's... I have a wallet and I'm holding a set of tokens and I'm transferring those tokens to you and I'm taking my tokens and I'm giving you uh, a substitute that is basically these tokens handed to you and they are actual tokens. So when you get one Bitcoin, it is literally 100 million individual tokens. It is not an account. It can't be divided. There are no half Satoshis. So when I've done that, you now have a valid exchange and transaction, but to ensure that no one can um, double spend or steal your tokens or do something else or commit a fraud and to ensure that only one copy can exist, that I can't recopy it multiple times, you have a registry and that's where you file on the registry. But a registry doesn't mean ownership. Bitcoin as a registry doesn't mean ownership. So one of the systems I copied was the carbon credit system implemented within Europe. And the carbon credit system, um, uh, EUAs, uh, were distributed across uh, multiple registries. So there's a registry in the UK, one in Ireland, Germany, France, Greece, every single, Italy, um, etc. cetera. Um, I'm not sure if Switzerland are part of it or not because, well, who knows EU-wise whether the Swiss deal or not. Um, but anyway, every individual member state has its own registry. And they update by a whole lot of convoluted pro, um, sort of protocols, um, sort of mix of Oracle database stuff and whatever else. Horribly inefficient, but it's a distributed database, literally. So it's a distributed registry like Bitcoin, it's just horribly inefficient because, well, Oracle likes to sell big machines. <laughs> so um, we have this horribly distributed registry. And that was even tested, um, luckily, shortly afterwards. So there's a case um, of Armstrong versus Winnington Networks, which was uh, Winnington Networks received stolen tokens. And their argument was, they're on the registry, which the equivalent would be they're on the blockchain. And Armstrong said, well, they were stolen by a hacker from our network. Give me back my, my tokens. 
And Winnington said, oh, we're a purchaser in good faith, which is a valid uh, sort of protection for certain things. But Winnington Networks didn't do their KYC requirement. So there are actually in Europe uh, 15,000 euro uh, bu uh, business requirements for doing certain levels of KYC. There are smaller ones as well. Uh, but at 15,000, you're not allowed to do business with another company unless you have things like passports, beneficial owners, all of this stuff. Company registers are public so you can search them. You have to do all this stuff. So you can't just go, well, this guy in the pub is offering me a side of meat on a platter for half price, I'm going to trust it. Or, yep, that's a really nice TV. Um, why are there Jimmy marks on the side? Um, but yeah, it's half price, that sort of thing. You have to actually do that valid stuff or you're not a customer without notice. So like Winnington Networks, if you're receiving Bitcoin and you've got large amounts and it's stolen or anything like that, then effectively, um, you don't own that Bitcoin. None of this, my key's my Bitcoin. And I've been slowly getting lawyers to understand this and um, uh, some of the ones in the, the Law Society and um, um, the Law Commission and everything like that are really getting it. And I've been talking to a number of barristers uh, at the moment, including some that are in the um, uh, Law Commission, and they are getting, your keys is not your Bitcoin. So what people don't get is there's this thing called vindication. It's a legal framework where if you lose your Bitcoin or something like this, or anything, you lose an asset, and it can be traced or followed, then it can be recovered. Now, people, part of why this whole decentralized bit is about is they realize the fragility of their view of things. My view of Bitcoin and their view of Bitcoin or Ethereum or Zcash or any network are different. Networks can be compelled. Bitcoin is designed to signal. Lots of big data centers, I said those in the beginning, and those data centers can be seen, can be found. And if you can find a data center, you can issue a worldwide freezing order and you can order a seizure. So you can go, and if you have proceeds of crime, you can now come out there with your proceeds of crime order and go to that miner, and that miner is an agent of my network, can decide not to mine anymore, but he can't decide to mine those Bitcoin. He can stop mining, and that is a valid thing. You, you, you can't force him to mine something, but if he mines and it is moving a frozen Bitcoin illegally, he is liable. So if there's a million dollars worth of stolen Bitcoin and it moves through his um, thing after notification, you can sue that miner for the million dollars and get your money back. So Bitcoin is not a workaround for the law is one of the takeaways I have. No, it's actually a, a way of making it more efficient. So one of the problems uh, as a former auditor um, is when working with regulators and officials is they're so understaffed. There are so few um, sort of uh, people to actually do anti-fraud, um, to audits, to do all this stuff, to, to do it. So handing them a tool that actually leverages their ability to ensure honest behavior is a good thing. 
Okay, so I have a, a bit of a tangential question, but I want to make the, a point to people that are trying to understand this stuff about how much there really is behind Bitcoin. And one of the things you said, I think this was at CoinGeek uh, Toronto, you introduced the idea that uh, uh, Bitcoin is a multi-leader Stackelberg game, if I remember that correctly. That's correct, yes. Um, do you want to go into that a little bit? This is a, it's a tangent, but I think it's interesting when you rope all these pieces together. So what is that? And, and yeah. I'll finish up one thing, then I'll do that one. So the first one is where I'm saying about decentralized and uh, people talk about what needs to be more decentralized and whatever else. To take down Ethereum with orders would be three, maximum four. Three, right now, four if one pulled out and said, no, I'm not going to mine this and lose money. Yes. And that would be a choice to lose money. So four court orders, very simple to get, two jurisdictions, and you have forced a change, and that's it. None of this, and if an exchange decides not to do it, they're criminalized. If a user decides, I'm not going to do this, who cares? They're irrelevant. None of this wearing a hat and UASF stuff, users mean nothing to the network. Next, if you go, we're going to change the protocol and avoid things. Under the CFAA in the US, um, then you've got botnet provisions. You are actually now a criminal botnet. Every operator of that network can face up to 20 years in prison. Further, database rights. Uh, so seeing as Greg's already uh, leaked my article uh, before it's even finished drafting, I'll mention that now. The Bitcoin database was never covered under the MIT license. It's work product. So if I have OpenOffice, yes. um, it's open source. It's under a GPL license, so it's even more open. But I don't own a document created using OpenOffice, do I? I don't own a document created because it's on Linux. So like it or not, I own the Bitcoin database. The controls that people have are because of a unilateral contract I made. I am contractually bound to a stable protocol. I am contractually bound to ensure that the distribution of the tokens that I issued, and they were issued in full on the first day I launched it, I'm the issuer, with all the legal requirements that means. When I did that, I became bound. So if I change anything, the protection users have is I am liable to every single user of the system. Not just miners, every user can sue me. So how do you know I won't change it? Because if I have a billion users out there in the future, every single one of them has a legal redress against me for not maintaining this network. That so is, you had to restore the original protocol, is that what you're saying? Like, is this like a legally obliged to, Genesis is uh, important from a legal perspective? Um, in part, but it's also my creation, so yes. Um, at the same time, um, the BTC and BCH copies are then taking that, and the interesting part is that they have removed any contractual limitations on me, because they've done it without um, having a valid license. So uh, database rights are defined uh, under the database regulations um, 
in um, uh, law in the uh, UK and the equivalent directive in the EU. Um, and there are equivalent but different things uh, because of WIPO in the USA. So um, that's actually a, a, a good thing. It's, it's part of why I said I have valid reasons for not wanting to fork the network. So I can't stop you doing an Ethereum. You can take my code and build a new database. You can take Litecoin type things where you tweaked it a little bit and build a new database. You can build a completely new version of Bitcoin, calling it something else and tweaking the color and whatever else and start a new Genesis block. And I can't stop you. But uh, once you start the database bit, then that actually becomes messy. But it is important from a point of view of the network. So everyone, and they're going to find this out this year, um, if you fork the network, there are consequences. If you don't have a license, there are consequences. So if you just take the network and fork it, then what you now have is a group and all this where distributed database, um, sorry, where distributed developers means nothing. Uh, MyGo versus SEC. You are a partnership. If you're Bitcoin ABC, you are a partnership. If one person who has ever put any code into your system resides anywhere in the EU, they are within European uh, jurisdiction. If a single core developer has ever lived and resided while coding in the EU, they are covered. Now, if you start thinking about this, one of the problems with forking that we're going to have to address as we're scaling is it causes uncertainty. How do we protect uncertainty? Law and contracts. If you illegally take the network and you copy it and you have two copies of database, I now have redress against every single exchange globally to the value of the network at the time of the fork. Effectively for BTC, that's $80 billion. And I don't even need to fund that personally because when you're talking about that much money, there are some lawyers out there that will say, I'll take 20% and we will fund it forever. And basically, they will happily take on someone like Binance and cause them $100 million worth of legal fees a year. And they will happily take on Bitfinex and Tether. And they will happily do these things. So you start to see how that becomes scary. This is why they hate my vision of Bitcoin, to get back to the point. Because decentralized for them is no one can stop us. No one can control us. No one can stop us building our little drug empire and selling our, our um, illegal weapons and doing child porn and everything like that. Not on Bitcoin. Bitcoin is anti-everything like that. Anti-Silk Road. Anti-all these crime barons. Or want to be. So there will never be a scenario in Bitcoin the way it's designed where every single person, like Ethereum once, can have their own node. Sorry, it's economically disincentivized. There is no way that a million nodes can ever exist. It just can't happen. This is why they're trying to keep it small. 
They see the flaw in their way of thinking. For Bitcoin to scale, it always forms a controlled giant node. What they're seeking is to have this distributed system where every person on earth can use Bitcoin, yet not be controllable. And you can't do that with the way that the, um, the blockchain works. It's actually the opposite of that. It draws out individuals who want to make more money and compete better, even if you do have a system where you can't have ASICs or whatever else, and you can keep it small, then people will build racks of computers, and people will build databases of CPUs, and they will still win. So, so I've got several different threads we could go down, depending on what you want to do here. I mean. One of them is uh, one of the other interesting ideas. So there's, there's the game theory thing. Do you want to go into that or do you want to? So let's do the Stackelberg game. Okay, let's, yeah. So what is a multi-leader Stackelberg game? So Bitcoin miners don't actually know what the others are doing. Um, the nature is what it's an agency agreement. So no miner owns part of the database because they're not actually creating for themselves. They're contracted. So they're legally an agent. That's why they can come and go. That's why it's important that miners aren't bound to the network. So as an agent to the network that can come and go, um, you don't know the actions of other miners. You can never even tell collusively what they're doing. So you have to plan as the leader, the main um, sort of say 30% um, miner, what the other 70% are going to do. And you can't even say that if you're two guys who are 20% each, who are the sort of joint leaders, um, what the other leader will do. You can only look at history. And anyone who's looked at um, uh, judging um, sort of forward time uh, series or whatever else based on historical data will know how the um, distribution quickly splays into non-predicted um, sort of outcomes. It's chaotic. So as a chaos-based system, and chaos is a mathematical, not random, but whatever, um, you end up with leaders who act to steward and bind the system based on what they think the small guys will do. And the small guys then act based on what they, they think the large guys will do. And this starts a interplay where people see profitability coming and going. And as we've seen across um, different systems, they move to ensure maximal profitability at any time, um, turning mining power on and off, processing more, etc. And what this will end up leading to is more stable block times, um, but only at scale. And so as we scale the system and we get rid of the subsidy, we get into a sawtooth function because imagine the subsidy is now gone. The fee structure, um, for all intents and purposes at any time, can be modelled as a linear function that increases with time. Yeah. So the more fees we get um, increases approximately linear over time. That there'll be seasonal effects and other things, but for any individual time period, we can model it as a linear effect. So. What you end up with is the resulting way of doing this would be a sigmoid function, which is basically S-shape. And 
you will turn off your mining power for the first uh, part. Because if I mine a new block right after someone's mined a block, I get very small rewards. So I will wait until there's the margin of profitability. I'll reduce my power or use it for something else. When it's now profitable, I'll turn on more and more machines and increase more and more. And that will mean it becomes more and more likely to discover it. And everyone will probably follow this because um, Stackelberg game, you end up with everyone following the same sort of standard. And that means with a sigmoid function, you can get rare large times and can get rare small times, but it gets very tight around a bound. So that bound becomes close to 10 minutes. And you know that it might be nine and a half and it might be 10 and a half, but you end up with a very fine tuned time, but only when it scales. Yeah, I understand. So it becomes more uh, stable, it becomes more... Correct. You know, uh, People get better uh, predictability over block times yeah. um, and they start being able to react to what's occurring on the network more. Yeah. At scale. So I've got, I, we want to ro wrap this up soon just because you have to eat dinner and, and stuff like this and so do I. And, um, so I, I've got a, a, maybe one more question, although I'm happy to go in any direction you want to go in. Um, but maybe I just want to touch on this because it's another uh, uh, central theme in Bitcoin is just, just economics kind of broadly. Um, one of the ideas you, you mentioned to me recently and you've mentioned this on Slack and things like this. Um, there's a uh, coast in the theory of the firm and one of the things you mentioned to me was that th this was you said something to the effect of uh, this is basically or roughly speaking the economics of Bitcoin. Do you want to maybe explain that or anything else with, yes. with respect to the economics? Um, unfortunately um, a number of um, sort of Milton Friedman's um, sort of disciples have taken the idea of coast completely wrong. Coast worked a lot on transaction costs and things like this. And a lot of the idea that we have by the ultra sort of out there market people is this idea that um, you can have a perfect market. A Kosian perfect market, and Koch demonstrated this, and he, he actually sort of um, uh, complained about how everyone was taking it wrongly, can exist when there's zero transaction fees. If the transaction fees in a system approach zero, you can actually have a perfect market. Now, Coase then actually, um, even though he's used as the father of perfect markets and everything like that, then, then turned around in the next chapter and said, therefore, perfect markets can never exist because there can never be zero transaction fees. There's always some cost. And even with Bitcoin, if we get them really low, there's some cost. There's always timing, there's always other things, there's always unknown information, insider trading, etc. So we have this system that people just want to be different. Um, they want a perfect system, but we don't have a perfect world, unfortunately. And you always have transaction fees. So um, Coase talked about a lot of things to do with um, sort of economic costs, legal costs, etc. Now, part of why I'm saying this, in um, when I'm saying legal um, sort of costs and everything like that for Bitcoin, legal uh, ramifications, once people start to understand the system and the incentives, then it becomes less likely 
that they will actually go down that path. So if they see a large transaction cost, if they notice that they're going to be incentivized not to commit a crime because they're going to be discovered, if they attack as a miner, they will lose hardware and they will lose systems, then they're going to see the transaction cost in doing that and they move to not have the transaction cost, which is more efficient and effective. So the transaction cost in Bitcoin doesn't come about because to do so would be economically inefficient. So um, unfortunately, a lot of uh, people um, who do the typical uh, Rothbardian mantra without even understanding the aspects never go into the details economically about why and why it doesn't work. Um, so, uh, and this is also why a few people have, uh, who are economists disparage Bitcoin because they hear these other stories. So um, I quite respect people like Joseph Stiglitz who's written extensively on, on banks versus markets and whatever else. And um, what he's seen unfortunately is the core BTC ABC mantra, um, which unfortunately turns these people off Bitcoin because yes. all they see is the negatives and then they, they don't understand. And where I see bank versus market, it's because both have different roles. Markets are very efficient for certain um, things in capital raising. If you want a new high-tech venture to raise capital, markets are incredibly effective because banks have no metric to measure this on. But if you're building a hairdresser in um, a major city or you want to start a plumbing business or something like this, then you don't go to a market for that. You don't go out and raise an ICO because it's actually more efficient and effective. The transaction costs are better. It actually is more in your interest rather than giving up equity long term to take out a loan and pay it off. If you're an effective barber, an effective hairdresser, an effective um, caterer, then giving up your equity um, to a non-partner in the market is actually very bad. It makes you sort of earn less and less. Already in a small business, you're probably earning less than if you were an employee. Once you then give up half of what you're earning to someone who just gave you capital, even less again. So um, banks and markets have different roles in society. And unfortunately, um, transactional costs and distribution is part of that. And, and people just aren't looking at the economic aspects here. Greg, I really want to ask follow-up questions, but I think it's probably we should probably call it an end. And what I'm hoping is that uh, uh, hopefully, hopefully we can continue this. Hopefully this is valuable for people and what, what we want to do is uh, put out some more of this uh, very technical and very comprehensive and, and deep information out there. So really thank you very much you for will. your time and I, I hope uh, we can do this uh, again. Certainly.